If you have your Bible, would you open with me to Daniel chapter 3? Daniel chapter 3 will be in verses 1 through 30 this morning. We have a lot of work to do and a lot of text to cover. Uh, today's sermon will be Bible heavy. And I think that's a really good thing. I'm always excited when I have sermons that come up that are Bible heavy. Uh, but just to remind us a little bit of our context. As we've been kind of coming into Daniel chapter 3, we, we have to make note of a few things. The, the first thing that we have to make note of is that Daniel is a book that shows us that God is with his people in Babylon. God is with his people in Babylon. And that's good news for us. That's a good reminder for us. That's good knowledge for us that God is with his people even in the place where God's people feel like they're not totally home. And so we, we can draw that line here to El Paso today. While we feel home here, I think that all of us can admit and readily admit that El Paso, while it is our home, isn't home. It's not perfect, right? It's, it isn't. And, and so we recognize when we come to the book of Daniel that there is uh, a position where we are where we're home, but we're not home yet. And what we need to remember is even here, even in El Paso, God is with us. God is with his people. And that matters. That deeply matters to us. I think another thing we need to see and we need to recognize as we enter into Daniel chapter 3 is that God has been with his people and he has given them favor in Babylon. Now that's important because we've got two chapters where God's people have been given favor and we're going to come to a chapter today in Daniel chapter 3 where God's people are not given favor for their obedience. That matters. Immediately before, in chapter 2, we saw a vision. And in that vision, something amazing happens. There's an image with a head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon, has this dream, and he has this vision with the head of gold. And, and Daniel tells him that the head of gold symbolizes Babylon. Now, this is hilarious to me that immediately after, maybe it's tragic, that immediately after he sees a vision of a head of gold that symbolizes Babylon, what does he do in the chapter we're in today? He makes a statue of gold. <laughs> like as if he couldn't get it. He had this vision and then he decides, man, look how awesome I am. I'm going to make a statue of gold. And, and, and this to me, if we're not careful, is something simple that we can move past. But what we're seeing in Daniel chapter 3, which we will read through in a minute, what we're seeing in Daniel chapter 3 is we're seeing humanity's desire to be God on full display. On full display. Uh, maybe I can use a story to illustrate this a little bit more appropriately for us. Uh, a few nights ago at dinner, 
uh, Emric and I were, were sitting at the dinner table, and Emric had an idea. Uh, one of the things he's been doing lately is he's been, he, he loves food, but then he gets distracted with the desire to go and play. And so a, a continuous conversation that we're having to have is, uh, you need to finish your dinner. You need to sit down at the dinner table, and you need to finish your dinner. And once you've finished your dinner, then you can go and play. And so we've had this conversation a few times at dinner, uh, told him that, hey, you need to, to eat your food. And so then he, he sits before his food and he points to his dinner, he points to his plate and he says, it told me not to eat it. <laughs> he, and uh, as a father, I'm conflicted here because this is hilarious, right? <laughs> Um, but he's creating new authority figures that have determined who's in charge, right? So we have this situation here where, where my, my son has decided that his dinner is also an authority figure in his life. And his dad, who is his actual authority and knows what is actually best for him at that moment, is another authority figure. So he's got these two authorities, and, and then he's now trying to move his desires and his direct, direction towards whatever authority is going to give him what he wants, right? Like, the dinner told him that he should not eat it, and that's going to get him exactly what he wants. He's got two conflicting authorities. He was so committed to playing instead of eating that he had set up a story where his food was now telling him to not eat it. And just in case you're wondering if you're a two-year-old deep in your heart, that's what all of us do. We create authority figures that tell us that the decision we're making is okay. Now, eventually, my, my son, who is just a, a wonderful child, I've just been a joy to parent him, he continues to eat his dinner. And, and why does he continue to eat his dinner? Because he recognizes, he knows that at the end of the day, his dinner plate really couldn't make anything happen for him. He knew where the actual authority lied. This is a huge theme that's going to be working throughout our story today, that there is an authority that supersedes all other authorities. Now, that term makes us uncomfortable, but it's an important term. We have in our text today an authority figure, King Nebuchadnezzar, who has set up his own image. And the text is going to make painstaking fun of that. It's just going to go out of its way to make fun of Nebuchadnezzar saying that this is God and you should worship this God. And then in this text, we're going to have individuals who understand the higher authority that exists. And this understanding of that higher authority is going to motivate faithfulness, 
and obedience in their life. And so if you would, with me, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter. Um, I, I think it might be on the screen. It doesn't look like it's going to be right now, but that's okay. Just have your Bible in front of you. If not, we've all got phones. We can look up Daniel chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 30. Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every other kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image the King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I want us to briefly notice the ridiculous rep repetition in this text. It's, it's purposed to get us to see how ridiculous what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is. Let's keep moving. Verse 8. Therefore, at that certain time, Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Draw attention to something really quickly. Nebuchadnezzar has determined that he is the only God there is. He has set up an image. He has set up an image. He's commanded. And then we come to this text, and after commanding, what does he say? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He believes deep in his heart that he holds all the power. 
and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Let's just notice something real quick. We have the king's authority going forward, the king's authority going forward. He orders and he orders and he orders. And what does it lead to right off the bat in this chapter? Those who follow the orders of this authority end up killed. Keep reading with me. But those who do not follow the orders of this authority in verses 24... Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. There's something we need to do really quickly with this text, and, and I wish we had the, the screen available. Davey, would you be willing to go back and just click on the Microsoft Edge button? Um, there, there's something that we need to see in the structure of this text that's going to help us understand this text a little better. Notice uh, with me, if you will, in the beginning of this text, the obscene repetition. I mean, it's going to uh, just in a 
an abundance of lengths to make sure that we know that what the king's doing here is almost ridiculous, right? We, we get that after the beginning. You feel tired reading the first few verses of this text. But there's also something else happening in the structure of this text. It's not just pointing us towards satire. It's not just getting us to laugh at the king. It's also getting us to see something else. Let me get there really quickly. Notice, if you will, in the very beginning of this text, we have the king demanding worship. And at the end of this text, we have the king worshiping. Sandwiched in between that, in the very beginning, after the king has demanded worship, we have Chaldeans witnessing as God's people do not bow in worship. And then at the end of the text, what do we see the, the, the authorities in the land doing? They're witnessing as God has delivered his people. So there's contrast again there in comparison. And then even closer, sandwiched in between that, we see in verses 13 and 15, the king is furious that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not worship his gods. And then on the back end of that, in verses 19 and 23, we see again that the king is furious that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not worship his gods. And right in the middle, we see these verses stand out, verses 16 through 18. God is proclaimed by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, this is fascinating. This is absolutely fascinating. The faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is proclaimed at the center of this text. What we have here, and, and forgive me if you will, I need to nerd out a little bit because we need it this morning. What we have here is what's called a chiastic structure. Now, how many of you have taken a literature class at any point in time in your life? All right. What is the literature class doing? It's trying to teach you how to read texts. It's trying to teach you how to see structure within texts. And so when you're reading narrative, you usually look at things like character and setting and plot and climax and resolution. When you're reading poetry, you usually look at repetition. When you are reading letters, you usually look at the, the really emphasized imperatives, like when does he tell you to do something? When you're reading, you look for structure to help you understand the emphasis of the author. And so in, in the ancient world, there's a couple things happening. The first is that most people in the ancient world do not know how to read. They're illiterate. They, they haven't had the ability to, to be taught how to read. The, the majority of humanity exists in that sphere. And, and then the other thing is that this is far before the printing press, and so the, the regular and mass production of literature is unavailable. And so something we see in ancient literature often is structures like chiastic structures. It's comparison and contrast that builds off repetition to put the emphasis so that people could memorize it easier. And so this story is built with memorization in mind. That's the obscene repetition. And then that's the comparison and the contrast that goes all the way through. And the purpose of that is so that you would know the emphasis in a greater way. And so the emphasis falls on verses 16 and 18, where God is proclaimed in Babylon. This, this is actually really important to us, what the text here is driving at. We could, we could spend all day making observations from this text that would get us off the main idea. 
And we could spend all day telling ourselves more and more about how this just means we need to stand up to the man. But here's what's actually in view in this text in verses 16 through 18. Let's read those verses. O king, look at verse 18 for me. We will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, some of you may be more familiar with the Bible than others, but what's in view here is the first commandment. And the first commandment that God ever gives his people, he, he delivers them from 400 years of slavery and he brings them out. He's going to create a people for himself, for his own glory, and he gives them rules about being in his household. What does it look to be a part of the family of God? What does it look like to be part of God's kingdom? And the first, the first thing that he gives them is this command, you shall not worship any other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. If you look at the screen, we have Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 5, and this is the first commandment. It's, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. What's happening in this chapter? There's an image that the people of God are being told to bow down to and serve, and if they were to do so, they would break the very first commandment of God. And so what's in view in this chapter is God's commands are up against the commands of the home. That's interesting. Because so far what we've learned is that God is in Babylon and that God has a purpose in Babylon. And now to disobey the commands of the ruler of Babylon would put them in disobedience to God. We have a problem. <laughs> Excuse me. If we were to look <clears throat> in Exodus 20... The reason behind why the Ten Commandments exist and why the First Commandment exists is because God has delivered His people from Egypt. In doing so, what God does in the very beginning of the story in His deliverance of His people is He is, this is amazing, He is showing that He has power that no other gods, no other authorities, no other rulers have. And here in this chapter of the Bible, Nebuchadnezzar wants the people of God to give him the glory and the worship that only God deserves. In Babylon, there is pressure and it's an external pressure, but it's also an internal pressure to find value and meaning outside of God. Here, here's what I mean by the external pressure. The external pressure is the culture is constantly telling them to find hope elsewhere, to, to find hope in Babylon, the, the greatest empire, to find hope in King Nebuchadnezzar, the strongest king. Put your hope in Babylon. Put your hope in our ideologies, in our ways of thinking. Put your hope in the common good that Babylon will bring to the world. But then there's also an internal pressure in Babylon. 
And the internal pressure in Babylon is to set up gods of our own making. If we've been following the story, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they've been raised up to high positions within Babylon. They, are, they, are, they have influence, and they have power, and they have the ability to speak truth to the king and to see the king respond like he did in chapter 2 with proclaiming God. They've seen their position be used for the good. And so maybe, and I don't know, this is conjecture, but I think it's fair to think that they might wrestle with this, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego might be wondering, man, our position and our success has given us a space to speak into the life of this king. Should we just bow down? Knowing that later on we're going to have more opportunities to speak truth and to proclaim the good news of the king, should we... Should we hold tightly to our power and influence? Here's the, here's the reality. There's this subtle and dangerous trick that Babylon plays. And it's that we should hold on to power and influence for godly reasons. It would have been very easy for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to look at their status and position and say, if we don't bow down and worship, if we don't bow down and worship, we're going to lose this position that we have. We're going to lose the power that we have. We're going to lose the seat that's given us multiple opportunities for gospel proclamations to this king. We're going to lose opportunities to proclaim God in this God-forsaken place if we don't bow down. So maybe, and I don't know, maybe this is just me, but maybe they were holding on to this pressure to hold on to power and in doing so sacrifice faithfulness to God. Maybe, maybe you have that moment in your, in your life right now where you're feeling like, man, I, I, could, I could remain faithful to God and I need to, but... Like, that might sacrifice the relationship with this person. That might sacrifice the position that I have. Like, if I'm just honest about my obedience to God, what's going to happen is I'm going to lose my status and ability to even make a difference. Whether we'll admit it or not, that pressure comes from a deeply held belief that we know better than God does. Deep inside, if we're honest, each of us has a little toddler, like I said earlier, but each of us also has a little Nebuchadnezzar saying, I'm a golden image. My ideas, my thoughts, my wisdom is worthy of worship. I know best for my life. God wouldn't ask me to walk in obedience and faithfulness to him here because otherwise I'd sacrifice the position and the ability to speak truth and to proclaim the gospel. Isn't that what we're supposed to do in Babylon, proclaim the gospel? How can we proclaim the gospel if we're losing our positions because we're walking in obedience to God? It sounds a little silly, doesn't it? But if we're honest, don't we find ourselves in that, in our relationships? Like, if I, if, I, if I walk in obedience to the Lord, these people around me are just going to think I'm super weird. If I, if I walk in obedience to the Lord, I'm going to lose my job. 
And then not only will I lose my job, but like, look at, look at the fallout of that. Like, I wouldn't then be able to support the church, and then I wouldn't even be able at that point in time to preach the gospel to those who are at my workplace. So if I lose my job, I'd, I'd actually lose all this power and position that I have. So maybe God just wants me to, to compromise at this point in time. And later on, I'll stand stronger, but it'll, it'll be when I have a better position to stand strong. Here's what we're learning from this passage. What we're learning from this passage is that there is pressure in Babylon to worship other gods. We, in El Paso, in 2022, live with pressure to worship other gods. Now, maybe you're hearing this and you're like, look, Austin, I only sing to one person, and it's on Sunday mornings at Jesus Chapel, so I don't really know what you're talking about when you use worship to other gods. Like, nobody's commanding me to bow down before a golden image right now. Um, that comes from a fundamental misunderstanding of the word worship. Let me, let me explain what I mean. Um, worship in the biblical context is not just singing songs. It's not. Uh, worship throughout Scripture is what dictates your life. Put simply, how do you know if you're worshiping or, or what are you worshiping? You should ask yourself the question, what am I willing to sacrifice for? What am I willing to sacrifice for? And what you are willing to sacrifice for will give you a really good idea of what you are willing to worship. So let me just give an example just to make sure that you guys don't just feel I'm up here condemning. Uh, I struggle with an idol problem. Can I just be honest? And that idol is all of you. Like, I want you to like me. <laughs> I just do. If I'm honest with myself, I want every single person in this church to like me. And if I'm not careful... If I'm not careful to constantly remind myself of the only God who deserves my allegiance, I will quickly desert the truth of Scripture to follow the various opinions of those who exist in our congregation. Which, there's like, if everybody shows up who calls this their home church, about 150 of us, and that's 150 various opinions. So definitely issues with pluralism on my part. Like, I desire the approval of people so much that if I get that out of context, if I get that out of order with, with God's desire and God's pleasure and, and serving God, here's what happens. We'll desert obedience to the text because I care more about what people think than I do what God thinks and what God says. 
too honest? Let me be a little more honest. Let me tell you about my marriage. Just to give you maybe another example. Maybe you're like, look, I don't, I'm not a pastor of a church. I don't really know what you deal with. You've got issues. That's all I know. <laughs> They're further than you would even imagine. Early on in my, in my marriage, and in fact, in the, the very first year of my marriage, I had an understanding of my responsibility of, as a husband that was deeply shaped by my wife's approval of me. So here's how that played out. I thought in my mind that I had to be a certain type of person and provide a certain type of lifestyle in order for my wife to love me. I thought in my mind that her love and her approval was the thing that mattered the most. And so what I did was I had created an idea of what this idol in my life wanted. And I made sure that everything worked towards that end. And so here's how this played out in my marriage. We lived in Northern California. Uh, we did not make enough money to live in Northern California. And I wanted my wife to have the life that I thought that she wanted to have. And so I spent and I hid debt and I was dishonest with her to create a picture of the life that I thought that she wanted because she sat as Lord over my life. Which really I sat as Lord over my life because I wanted approval and value and that's how I thought I had it. To the point where I had created this monster behind the scenes, this masked individual who uh, she thought she was married to that was all hidden by a man who could not be honest about where he was really at because he had a different God on the throne than the God of the universe. It's tragic, isn't it? It's tragic how, how easy it is, and, and lest you be worried, that was quite some time ago, and my wife and I have by the grace of the Lord overcome that but, but that's still a feeling in my heart to this day to worship the idol of self-approval like will others approve of me rather than the God of the universe So there's a question when we come to chapter 3 that we asked in the very beginning that all of us need to ask. Because if, if you're honest, if we were to really just look deep inside of each of our hearts, I'm not the only one dealing with these issues. All of us. All of us have these areas where we, we're tempted towards worship. And so we have to ask this question, what is going to drive a lifetime of faithfulness? with all of the idols that we face? And the answer, 
the answer is going to be the character of God. Look with me at verses 16 to 18 again. We need to notice some things in these, the emphasis of the passage. What motivates Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's uh, faithfulness to God? Well, verse 17, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So what do we know about God from their response? We know that he's able to deliver. We know that God, if he wanted to, could, could come down, could show up, could take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of there, and they could fly on unicorns or something like that into the new heavens and new earth. They know and they are confident that God, by whatever means necessary, could deliver them from this circumstance. We learned last week that human inability in Babylon is contrasted with God's ability. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego are perfectly aware that God is perfectly capable of delivering them. Notice this, though. He is able to deliver from the furnace, right? He's able to. He might not, but he is able to. And I love this. But he will deliver from the king's hand. Here's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are confident of, that even if the fiery furnace takes them, God will deliver them from the king and his false authority. Their confidence is not rooted in being delivered from death, but in something much deeper, that the God who is truly in control of their lives has power that goes beyond Nebuchadnezzar's earthly ability. So what are we seeing here? It's that God's power is much greater than life or death, and they know that, they see that, and they are confident that because there is no other God like him, that his ability to deliver even past death motivates obedience even in the face of death. There's, a, there's an idea that, that's just pouring out of this text, and it's that only God is worthy of worship because only God holds the true power of life and death. Nebuchadnezzar's power is merely a facade. It's a false threat. In fact, the only power he does have is given to him by God. It's not eternal. It's temporal. And his rule, his reign only lasts as long as God allows it. And this is seen in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's confidence in God. But it's also revealed throughout the rest of this text in God's deliverance of his people. Nebuchadnezzar's greatest threat, the burning fiery furnace, cannot touch them doesn't even singe their clothing. Here's what's amazing about it. They're, they're thrown bound into the fire, and then they walk out of the fire unbound. So literally anything the king put around them burns off. But their clothes, nothing. Their hair, nothing. The Lord surrounds his people, and Nebuchadnezzar's authority has no power up against God's authority. Now, it's important that we recognize that God does not deliver them from the situation initially. They still face the fiery furnace. They're still called to walk in obedience to God. But God is with them through all of it. Even in the furnace, God uses this opportunity in the face of a political power that is using false religion to deceive society into worship of other gods. 
And then God in that space, in the face of that, shows off his glory through the rescue of his people. This is, this is a theme, a theme that we're going to see throughout Scripture. If we leave Daniel 3 in Daniel 3 and we don't consider the rest of Scripture when talking about these issues, we will sorely miss out as a church this morning. Uh, hear what I mean when I say that. In Daniel 3, there's a call to worship an image, and the threat of not worshiping is a fiery furnace. I have wrestled with this text so much this week because something fascinating happens in Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus shares two parables. One of those parables is a parable of a seed that has been sown. And then at night, the en enemy comes in and he scatters weeds throughout the sower's field. And so the angels in that story, they ask the master, they say, what should we do? Should we tear it all up? And he says, no, let them grow. And when they've grown, it'll be easier to see who is a weed and who is indeed the seed, the good seed that we planted. And so at the harvest time, the harvest time comes around and, and the master says, go ahead, gather the weeds, bind them together. And then in verse 32 of Matthew chapter 13, he says, and throw them into the fiery furnace. Now, at first we might think that's just coincidence, right? Jesus is just, that's coincidence. But then immediately after, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 43, Jesus says, but the righteous shall shine like the sun, which is a quote from the book of Daniel. Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 is trying to get his readers to think of the book of Daniel in the context of the fiery furnace. He's trying to get his readers to think about powers and authorities. And then he's drawing that line to Matthew 13 verses 42 and he repeats himself in verse 50 to the eternal state of those who do not worship God. Now this is fascinating, and we could stop there, and if we stopped there, we would have a bit of an idea of what's happening, but we need to continue our thought, and if you'll forgive me that, that this might run a little long, I think it's important. Jesus seems to think something deeper is happening in Daniel 3. The fiery furnace used as a threat by King Nebuchadnezzar is a picture. It's a false picture at that of the eternal state of those who don't worship God. It's, it's in Daniel a facade, a false threat. And when we take that line of thinking of, of false threats by earthly kingdoms all the way to Revelation, we get an even greater understanding of what's happening. In Revelation 13 through 15, we see a dragon and two beasts. And if this is your first time ever at church and you think that we literally believe in literal dragons and beasts, Revelation is apocalyptic literature. So let me give you Revelation in 30 seconds. Revelation in 30 seconds, we are at war. We are at war and Jesus is going to win. There's just no doubt about it in our minds, but we're still at war. And we need to know who we're fighting. 
And so the dragon and the two beasts come up in Revelation 13 through 15 to give us an idea of who we're fighting. In fact, it's a picture. It's, it's a false picture. Um, many would call it an unholy trinity. It's the, the dragon and the two beasts comparing and contrasting God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And, and in Revelation 13, these multiple beasts, these two beasts, come before the dragon, and they are marked by authority and worship. These beasts, uh, as they are in submission to the dragon, the first beast is given authority and blasphemes God. Many worship him, and then this beast will make war on the saints. The second beast is given authority like the first beast, but here's what's fascinating. This beast is not in open war against the saints. In fact, his job is deception. His job is to, to weave deception amongst the saints, and, and through weaving deception amongst the saints, he will perform great signs and wonders, and he just subtly promotes worship of the first beast by deception. Now, you might be thinking, Austin, how did you get there? In Revelation 13 through 15, another prominent thing shows up. It's the issue we're dealing with here. It's the issue of the first commandment. In fact, this beast sets up images of the first beast and encourages mankind to worship and bow down before the beast. And those who don't worship the beast, worship the image that has been set up, are killed. That's exactly what's happening in our story. There's an image that's been set up, and those who don't worship the image are killed. The imagery that's being used here in this apocalyptic literature is really important for us to grasp. The, the first, the dragon is Satan. It's the enemy who is, who is pushing against the people of God. And the first beast is political power. It's authority and it's waging war against the saints. It's nations that decide that, that Christians have no place here. And the second beast is false religion. It's, it's used to deceive and to speak truth, to get people to turn away from God. The sole aim of the beasts, hear me, friends, the sole aim of the beasts is to distract us from worshiping the true king. They do this by instilling fear in those who would turn to worship them and by deceiving people into worship of them instead. The beasts are a facade of authority, a false threat. And here's why we know that. Here's why we know that. Revelation chapter 14, I'm going to read verses 9 through 12. And another angel, a third, follow them, saying them with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, pull, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and, and hear this, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Did you hear that? The language of fire is used again as the opposite 
If you are worshiping, if you're actually bowing down to the false authority, what you really get is the fiery furnace. And we thought this chapter was just about faithfulness. It is, certainly. What we're seeing in our text is there is a political power wielding a false religion to wage war against God and his people. And what Revelation wants us to understand is that that is Satan at work in the world wielding political power and false religion to get his people to turn away from God and to abandon the first commandment. There's a lot going on here, and I don't have enough time to preach through Revelation, so maybe I can just sum this up. There will be pressure for Christians throughout history to worship other gods. It's Satan's big push to distract you from the worship of the king, to distract you from the gospel, to deceive you, to get you to turn your attention elsewhere, to put your hope in other things, and in doing so, to get you to abandon the true king. And what Revelation teaches us is that Satan will use political power and he will use false religion to do that. And sometimes that will be an outright attack on the saints to cause them to fear and from a position of fear to leave the faith, from a position of fear to leave faithfulness to God. That's what we're seeing in Daniel 3. And other times it will be more subtle. Other times it will be there to get us angry and to distract us from the true solution, which is Jesus and his victory. And when we do, when he does that, when he distracts us from Jesus and his victory, here's what inevitably happens. We'll turn to false saviors for our hope. And in doing so, we'll have another God. So we need strength to handle the pressure that comes from the culture. And the only thing that will provide that strength is the character of God. That strength that we need is found in the character of God. How does this story end? It ends with God with them in the fire. They, they appeal to God's character who will deliver them out of the hand. Dale Ralph Davis says this. He says, Christ's flock are strangely comforted in this passage. Christ did not keep them out of the furnace but found them in it. He does not always shield you from all distresses and dangers, but it is in the loneliness, in the betrayal, in the loss that the fourth man comes and walks with you. He has the knack of both exposing you to, yet keeping you through waters and rivers and fire and operating rooms and funeral parlors and an empty house and through dangerous governments and through deceptive false religions. The fourth man can always find his people. What we need to grasp from this story is that the true power of eternal life does not rest with political powers and with false religions. It rests with God who protects his people even amidst all of these things. The motivation for faithfulness to us, for us today, is God's character and his willingness to subject himself to the very same political powers and false religions that would one day place Jesus on the cross. Like, isn't that amazing that it, it, what we see in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is a political power, the Roman Empire, that puts Jesus on the cross 
because of a false religion, self-righteous monotheism that accuses him and he submits himself to those things to go to the cross, but he is faithful the whole way. And because he is faithful the whole way to endure the fiery trial, he will be with you. He will be with you. He remains faithful to his people even then. And he arises from the fiery trial to give his people hope and confidence that if they put their faith in him, they have a future and a hope beyond life and death. Notice with me, friends, if we look at Revelation 14 again in verse 12, that there's a call for endurance for the people of God, and it finishes with this. Here is a call for endurance for the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. The commandment at hand here is the first, to have no other God, to put our hope in no other Savior. And how do we do that? By faith in Jesus. By faith in Jesus, who is God made flesh, who, who submits himself to the fiery trial so that we would have a future and a hope beyond life and death. Now let me quickly bring us to where I think we need to get from this passage before we leave. It does not take much work for all of us to agree that our world is just pretty messed up. It just doesn't take much work. Like, most of us think that everything's pretty messed up right now. And if you don't, you might not be living in reality. Like, things are just bad. And here's what I could very easily do with a sermon like this. And I'm going to in a little bit. But what I could very easily do is call out various things in our culture and we'd all be angered and we'd point fingers and we'd walk out of here unchanged and we'd play right into the enemy's hand to get us distracted and then instead of worshiping the true God who was willing to die for us, we'd worship false gods that will only ever get us killed. So we could do that. We could just get angry and then be distracted or we could take a moment and identify idols in our own lives. We could take a moment and identify places where we have put other gods on the throne. And so I just have some questions to ask us, some diagnostics for us, if you will. If you are sick and you go into a doctor's office, usually they won't just say, well, I think you have cancer. Let's give you chemo. No, they'll, they'll ask questions and they'll run tests and, and from that they will determine the root. So man, I just have some questions for us today to ask, to identify idols in our lives. The first is, where do you find it really easy to dedicate your time? Second is, what do you tend to put your hope in for a good life? Like, if I could just have this, life would be better. If I could just have this, then I'd be happy. If this would just happen in my nation, then things would be fine. What do you worship? 
What are you willing to sacrifice for? Like, what are you willing to spend your time, your money, and your energy on? Better yet, what takes up the majority of your time, your money, and your energy? Because that's going to give you a picture into where your heart is. I have another question. Maybe none of these sit with you. And so I want you to think in this way. Um, if this thing was taken away from you, you'd question God's faithfulness, goodness, and love. Like, if my job was taken away from me, I'd question God's faithfulness. If my spouse was taken away from me, I'd question God's faithfulness. If my children were taken away from me, I'd question God's faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, if, those are the, if that's true, if those things are true, you may have an idol in your life. And here's the reality. These things may even be really good things. They, they may be really good things, but when they are wrongly placed on the throne of your life, you cannot love that thing rightly, and you cannot love God rightly. I would encourage you to ask those questions of yourself this week. And then the last thing, I feel like I need to do this from this text, I can't get away from it, is there are, there are voices in our culture that are telling us to bow down and worship. And it will challenge every single one of us in our obedience and our faith. And I think, man, if I can just be honest about what I think are, are some of the clearest voices. I think the first is the autonomous self. You're your own person. You've got your own truth. No one, dedicate, or no one dictates your life. No one dictates your term. And so that plays itself out in a gender ideology and a sexual ethic that is just destructive. It's destructive. It plays itself out in men who are addicted to pornography and never think that that affects anybody else. It, it plays itself out in individuals who will, will choose uh, a, a pattern of sexual relations to others that is anti to what God has intended for humanity. And, and here's what the culture's telling you. It doesn't affect anyone. It won't hurt you. It's fine. Worship. Bow down. Worship. Our culture says if you'll just, if you'll just be less rigid, if you'll just kind of let yourself go a little bit, if you bow down and worship, kind of the idea of autonomous self I'll make sure all of your dreams come true. Turn in here for salvation. Turn in here for joy. Turn in here for happiness. And idols just like this massive billboard on the side of the road that says, if you exit here, all of your dreams will come true. In this text, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a variety of reasons to bow down and worship. 
position, power, influence, wealth, comfort, or any number of these things could have motivated the worship of this image. But what motivates faithfulness to God? Because they believed in the character of our God, one who delivers out of the hand of the enemy. It is so fascinating to me that in this passage, the fourth man is in the fire with them and the fire doesn't touch them. And is that not the beauty of the gospel that when we have turned our attention to Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, that God in Jesus Christ takes the fiery trial for us and then is with us and deliver us from the fire, delivers us from the fiery furnace for eternity? That's the God who's inviting us into obedience. And that's the God who we're called to worship. Not a God who is inconsistent and sets up authority figures that aren't true, but a God who is able to deliver his people, who will deliver his people. And that's what motivates our lifetime of faithful obedience to him. Let's pray. Father, I just recognize my complete inability this morning. <laughs> and I thank you. I thank you that your word is, is sharper than a two-edged sword, that it is living, that it is active. I thank you that the good news of the gospel goes forth. Lord, would you help us as we desire to remain faithful because you have been faithful to us. Lord, for those who are in here this morning that don't know you, I pray that you would be with them, um, that you would speak to them where I cannot, that you would be near to their hearts, that you would point them towards you, that they wouldn't see that there is no other God who is worthy of worship other than you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.